Amen. Well, we also have something else to be thankful for. We, we are baptizing six people today after the service down at the Yellow Breaches, so I hope that you will join us for that. I should tell you that we have the parking lot reserved down there. You've been seeing the signs uh, about no access to the creek. That's because we're using it. So thanks to Messiah College for that. But you will need to, and I want to say this now so I don't forget. I will say it again, I think, uh, at the end of the service. But uh, make sure there will be some folks uh, handing out parking passes that you'll want to have you put in your car because there may be a safety officer that's checking. Uh, so please do that on your way out uh, this morning, okay? Do you have your Bibles? This next part isn't going to be on the screen. Open up your Bibles. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you have it. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Matthew is the first gospel in our New Testament. Matthew 28, and we'll begin with verse 16. Notice that this is the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. Matthew tells us this in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. You're not alone. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of God for the people of God. Right? Thanks be to God. Amen. I have entitled the message this morning, Buried and Raised with Christ. What is baptism? Why do we do it? What does it mean for followers of Jesus? And is it necessary? We're going to be looking at these things this morning as this is, I think, an appropriate time to reflect on the meaning of our Christian baptism. But not only because we have people being baptized after the service this morning, that is true, but also because we need to be reminded of its significance today, I think, particularly in an increasingly secular post-Christian culture where there are many forces competing for our loyalty and allegiance. For those of you that have grown up in the church, much of this will probably be familiar to you, somewhat familiar, but some of it could be new. So... I'm asking that you really listen in because wherever you're at this morning, I, I want you to join me in praying that God's Spirit will speak to our hearts, that our hearts and minds would be open, right? Like, the, like Paul said, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And only the Spirit can do that, amen? And also pray with me that the Lord would remind us of what it means to follow Christ and commit to the way of discipleship. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our minds. There's so much, Lord, that the enemy uses to exploit our weaknesses, to cause a, a, a fog around our minds and our hearts that we don't understand and that so we don't perceive, so that we don't hear your voice in order to respond to it. So, Lord, would you clear away that fog in this moment? Would you help us to lean in and to listen to what you're saying? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's, let's begin with the obvious question. What is baptism? To answer that question, let's take a brief back, uh, trip back to the ancient world. Look at how it was being practiced before and during the time of Jesus. Baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to dip, to plunge, immerse, or to submerge something or someone under water. In the ancient Near East, to baptize could range from plunging a hot sword into cold water to dipping a consecrated vessel in water to ceremonial cleansing of a person or an object. This is what they would think about baptism. Both pagans and Jews had various religious forms of ritual cleansing to signify purity and dedication. And I find this interesting. The New Testament authors viewed Old Testament events such as uh, deliverance during the Exodus and the Red Sea, deliverance from slavery, as a cleansing from sin. The flood even was seen as a salvation, a saving of God's people and a cleansing of sin. These ritual cleansings were often required repeatedly in pagan temples. It might be the hands only, but it also could be the entire body. We see these same practices used by Jews as it was outlined in the law and in other rabbinical writings as well. And this is important because this type of outward cleansing symbolized an attitude of the heart. Uh, this recognition of the need for purity. And I think we should be clear about this. This wasn't some legalistic work that merited God's grace. I don't think any of them thought that way. As I think we're often tempted to understand it in our own time and debate about. No, it was believed to be, when practiced in sincerity, an outward picture of an inward reality. You see, by cleansing oneself outwardly, you join with the Spirit of, of God to cleanse oneself inwardly. It's mysterious, but that's what God does in this act. The Pharisees, for example, they, they practiced different forms of baptism and different kinds of immersions, as did the Essenes. They were a monastic, uh, the monastic Qumran community next to the Dead Sea. You remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? The, these were the folks that helped to preserve those scrolls. They were sort of like the Amish of the first century. You can think of it that way. The Essenes actually baptized repeatedly, repeatedly for their ongoing sins in sacred baths called mikvotes. Mikvotes. Look at a few pictures of these mikvotes. You can kind of get the idea of what baptism would have looked like there in the Essene community. We still have baptistries and churches today. We, we actually have one. It's underneath the piano here. Uh, but we'll be using the creek as we traditionally do here at Grantham Church. We'll be using that today. 
Some scholars have speculated, believing that it's possible that John the Baptist was one of this community because he's out preaching in the wilderness, right? As the Essenes were out in the wilderness, he's in eccentric clothing and he's far away from the temple preaching its judgment. Right? And the Essenes were like that. They, they thought everything was going to hell in a handbasket and so they didn't want anything part, uh, to do with and uh, be a part of the religious system of, of in, there in Jerusalem. And so they were saving themselves in the wilderness, preparing for this apocalyptic return of Messiah. But even if John the Baptist wasn't a part of this community, I think he certainly shared more in common with this apocalyptic emphasis of these Essenes than he did the Pharisees or any other religious group of his day. And what's John the Baptist doing out in the wilderness side of the Jordan? What's he doing? Well, in the spirit of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. You remember this? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, to make way, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is coming. And in other words, prepare yourself for the Messiah. Well, this would have been great news for people who were ready for Messiah to come. So think about that. John is in the wilderness, not in the city. He's preaching heart change, offering forgiveness apart from the temple system. Apart from the temple system and apart from the priests in Jerusalem. And this baptism that's being offered was a one-time act of total submission to God, not self-administered, but by this messenger who was preparing the way, he says, for the Messiah. And one day, as John is preaching and baptizing in the Jordan River, lo and behold, who is it that makes his way through the crowd and steps into the water? It's Jesus it's John's cousin. <laughs> but John doesn't just see his cousin, does he? I've seen his cousin before. This time it was, it was different. Instead, the Spirit opens John's eyes to see, and he says that, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. You remember when Jesus makes his way to John, John says what? I shouldn't be the one doing this, right? I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. As John recognizes who Jesus really is. But Jesus tells John in so many words, No, dear cousin, this is the thing to do. Right? This is what the Father wants. And this marks the beginning of what you've been preaching. The time has arrived. I must enter into these waters and set God's plan into motion. This is what Jesus is telling John the Baptist. So Jesus is baptized by John and confirmed as Messiah. So what began with John and was affirmed by Jesus was a baptismal practice that signified repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and the opening up of one's heart to the kingdom brought by the coming Messiah. In this case, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And from what we can tell, the baptism of John continued through Jesus' ministry, at least until his arrest and his execution. Remember, John the Baptist was beheaded for his preaching. 
But it's done in the name. When it comes to Jesus, we see, as we read in Matthew 28, it's done in the name of God, the God that Jesus reveals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's done in the name of Christ for the sake of the Trinitarian God. In other words, the symbolism of baptism finds its truest meaning in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Just as we'll see with Passover, we'll preach on this next Sunday, with the Passover meal becoming the communion meal of Christ's disciples, we also see baptism find its true fulfillment in Jesus. As I said before, as Noah was saved by the flood, as the Hebrews were saved by the waters of the Red Sea, and as the Gentile Naaman, whom Jesus mentions after his, after his reading of Scripture at Nazareth, which is what upset the people so much, the Gentile Naaman was healed in the waters of the Jordan. So now it is with the baptismal waters of Christ that Christians show that they have died and are buried with Jesus to be raised in newness of life due to his resurrection. Amen? This is what Peter had in mind, I think, as he preached on the day of Pentecost to a crowd in the upper room. Remember this in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches this powerful sermon that tells of how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and of messianic hopes, that he is the summation of the great story that has been unfolding. But instead of recognizing this truth, Peter says, you've killed, God's people has, have killed the Messiah. And everyone in the room is culpable in his death. That makes me think a few years ago when Passion of the Christ came out, um, you know, the director of that movie was, was accused of anti-Semitism. And one of the things that uh, Mel Gibson pointed out was in the scene where you see the soldier's hand. That's all you see. Grip the nail and place it on Jesus' hand. Mel Gibson said, that's my hand. It literally was his hand. As he said, as Jim Caviezel has said, the, the man that played Jesus, we are all culpable in the death of Jesus. Then this is what Luke tells us happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. This is what Luke tells us. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Repent. You know, repent may seem like a forgotten foreign word to us today. Uh, whether it's because of the fundamentalist preacher or the religious fanatic holding judgmental signs on the street corner or because we've truly, I think, truly lost a sense of the seriousness of, seriousness of sin in our culture. Uh, many people, even in the church, have dropped this word and its concept from their thinking and their speech and their living. And I think that is a huge error on our part. As brothers and sisters, if, you see, we, we have no hope of receiving Christ and his good news without repentance of sin, right? Without repentance of those things that deviate from God's will for our lives and our world. So what does Peter mean then when he says, repent? 
Well, it's the same thing Jesus meant when he said it. Or when John the Baptist said it, baptizing in the Jordan. To repent means to turn away from your sin and to turn to God. To reject sin that leads to death and instead choose life. We shouldn't view this as an indictment on us, but rather as an invitation. An invitation to change. An an invitation to transformation that's made possible by the Holy Spirit. And all we must do is yield. All we must do is yield to the Spirit as we join with Him and say, yes, for His will and to His will for us. If we can repent and believe, as Peter says, that is trust, then we should also be baptized, Peter tells us. It's now a baptism of Christ, meaning we align ourselves, our story, with Jesus and with God's story. Jesus being the full and final word of God. And by this first step of obedience, this command that Jesus gave us, and by this first step of obedience, we publicly profess that we are choosing by our own volition to enter into the story for ourselves, to receive forgiveness of our sins, and committing to this journey, this long journey with Jesus as a disciple among a community of disciples. So this is no individualistic act. Why? Because we're not saved in isolation. We're not saved in isolation. We were saved by a communal God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for a community of God on earth. This is part, partly what it, what it means to be made in God's image. We are made in the image of the communal God. And therefore we belong to community. Which is why being baptized alone in your bathtub doesn't count. And I've heard this question a lot. But pastor, does does baptism save you though? It's always a question the Baptists were tossing around. The connection between baptism and reception of the Holy Spirit is obvious in the New Testament. We cannot miss that. There are only a few examples to the contrary. Uh, Say like the thief on the cross, for example. He wasn't baptized because he died on the cross. But I think that if you were to ask an original apostle this question, do you have to be baptized to be saved? I'm convinced they would look at you a little puzzled and perplexed. Now while there's nothing magical about the water as we'll see this afternoon. There is something necessary and mysterious about the act, particularly when baptism coincides with the true condition of our heart, when our heart is in it. You see, whether the Holy Spirit comes upon or into a person's life right before, during, or soon after baptism, let's say maybe a person's heart wasn't in it the first time, the New Testament reveals it's a command of Jesus and presents baptism as an essential practice of the Christian church. Therefore, therefore, we mustn't trivialize it. We mustn't lessen its significance with the idea that symbol is just another way of saying it's not really necessary. I think maybe some have heard it that way. But signs and symbols in the first century were evidence 
of spiritual realities. In other words, today we might say that there is a metaphysical connection with our body and soul to this divine pouring out of the Spirit through our baptism. You know, while it may be mysterious to us, as we shall see with communion next week, it is very real and very necessary. If you've never taken the vows, right, then it's sort of like having a friends with benefits relationship with Jesus. But you see, you don't get the rewards of the kingdom without signing up, without reciting your vows, and without committing for the long haul. And while Christian baptism seems to be treated almost as if it's optional in some places today and in some churches, this wasn't the case for those wanting to follow Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, there was little delay in seeking baptism upon a person's desire to repent and believe. You remember Acts chapter 8, the story in Acts chapter 8. Let's consider that. When Philip is told by the Spirit to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, Riding along in his chariot. Right? So get a picture of this. Ethiopian. Philip goes to this man, hops in the chariot. This Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, this great messianic passage um, that was once thought of to des- as describing the sufferings of Israel, but we know is describing the sufferings of Jesus. He doesn't understand what it means. Asks Philip to help him. Philip tells him the story of Jesus how Jesus has fulfilled this messianic prophecy, what Jesus has come to do. And as they're riding along, do you remember this? The Ethiopian spots water, and he says, Look, I should be baptized as Christ commands. They stop the chariot, they get out, and Philip baptizes this Ethiopian. Pay attention to the conviction and the eagerness of this man to be baptized. He understood the story. He heard the call and command of Christ. And he couldn't get to the baptismal waters fast enough. You see, he wanted to obey Jesus. And he knew that begins with baptism. Christ commands. You see, it wasn't just enough to hear the story. It wasn't enough to know the story. Or be a member of a church from the time he was born being brought up in the faith. He understood that baptism was initiation into God's story. It is where we we join our story with the grand story that's been revealed in Jesus. So why wouldn't he want to be baptized? You see, the, the baptism that Philip administers was a testimony to the real thing that God had just done in his heart as a result of hearing the good news. And just imagine, this man would be going back to his home and taking the good news with him to the people of Ethiopia. Indeed, there are legends and stories that, are, that uh, came about as a result of this man's conversion of how he would take the gospel to his people. He would pass on the message of Jesus, inviting others to enter into the story by baptism and by becoming a part of the Christian community made up of people from all nations and all tongues. Here's what the Brethren in Christ Manual of Doctrine and Government says 
about baptism. This is from the latest version. I don't know if this is official or if this was my, my pre-copy of this. I imagine this will stay the same. This is what it says. The baptism of believers is a public witness that they've received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and are becoming a part of the community of faith. We believe that baptism by immersion symbolizes the believer's submission to Jesus Christ and identification with his death and resurrection. So notice that. It's a public witness for Christ. You're counting yourself with the church, a community of faith. If you look in your bulletin this morning, you'll see an insert that has the testimonies of the six people being baptized today. Traditionally, what we've done here at Grantham is you've heard from them personally. We're not going to do that this morning. We kind of put the cart before the horse this time. Our Discover Grantham Church class, our membership class wasn't ready. But typically, what we, what we do is when a person is baptized, they join the church. So all six of these people will go through that class at the end of next month. But we do that purposely. We do that so we understand, right? We're not baptized in isolation as an individual Christian. When we're baptized, we join the community of faith, and particularly the community in which we are publicly testifying before. And this idea comes from the Scriptures. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, right here about inner submission to Jesus and identifying with his death and resurrection. Romans 6, and I'm reading here from the New Living Translation. And Paul says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Because a lot of people were accusing Paul of this message. They don't have to adhere to the boundary markers of the Jews, these Gentiles. And so some people were saying, oh, you're just softening it for them. You're making it, making it easier, and you're just relishing in this grace, and people can just go on and do whatever they want. And Paul is saying, by no means. By no means is this what I'm saying. Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? Remember that. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Hallelujah. Verse 5, Paul goes on, Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. That's the symbolism in baptism. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also with, will live with him. This is why some folks in baptism will say you're buried with Christ in baptism out of the water, raised to walk in newness of life. And Paul goes on in verse 9. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Right? And Paul's saying that same Jesus is coming to live within you. And has come to live within you if you're a Christian. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Paul is saying, and so should you, right? So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God 
through Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. As many of you know, the Anabaptist movement began over this very issue. Baptism had lost its meaning 500 years ago in 16th century Christendom. Everyone was forced by the state to be baptized as infants or when becoming a citizen, which usually was when you were born. There wasn't any difference in this case in a disciple and a pagan. Between real followers of Jesus and nominal Christians who just grew up in a Christian state. So they led a Jesus revolution that at the core was about making disciples and forming a spirit-filled believer's church. And so this wasn't a moot point or a peripheral issue for the early Anabaptists. It was central to discipleship. They could die over this stuff. The early Anabaptists said, baptism shouldn't be used as a civil right. That is R-I-T-E, a civil right of the state. It shouldn't be used in that way. In faithfulness to the New Testament, they said, sure, babies and children are loved by Jesus, even kept safe by Jesus in his grace. But But baptism is for those who can process the story and decide for themselves if they want to live in it. Right? And until that time, children should be taught by their parents and the church about what it means to follow Jesus. And eventually, eventually, hopefully that time comes, that they would accept him for themselves by their own profession. And we have such a person this morning, as you'll see with Nathan Cyber. All of this is why the pejorative term Anabaptist, or literally means re-baptizers, was given to them by their opponents. The Anabaptists were those who rejected the state-mandated baptism, which, uh, as I said, happened when you were an infant. You were, and were re-baptized as a sign of this new life, a sign of the commitment to the New Testament, to your allegiance to Jesus' kingdom that's not of this world. And while there was no right or wrong way to baptize new converts for early Anabaptists, we even see that there was pouring uh, back in the 16th century. The brethren in Christ, and for the brethren in Christ, the preferred and traditional mode of baptism was by trine immersion, or three separate dippings of the candidate face downward. So in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, letting you catch your breath between each one. You'll see, this to, you'll see this today. It's not entirely clear why Brethren in Christ baptized forward, but the best reason is that Christ fell forward in his submission to God, and so shall we. What about the nature of this baptism? This is a question that comes up often. Was it a sacrament or simply an ordinance, that is, an act ordained by Christ. You may know that the Catholic Church taught and still teaches a view of sacrament as an invisible grace or means of salvation that makes those who want to emphasize baptism as simple only a little nervous, right, when they hear that word. So a lot of Protestants, including the Brethren in Christ, describe baptism and communion as ordinances. But personally, and I want you to hear me say this, I think it may be a little of both. I think of the meaning of baptism as somewhere in between sacrament and ordinance. 
A command and ordinance of Jesus? Yes. Something more than just symbol? I'd say yes to that as well. It is a mystery, but I do believe it is the truth. But regardless, regardless of what words you want to use to describe something that is both plain and mysterious, here's what I think we should agree on about the meaning of our baptism. Here's what I want you to lean in here. Our baptism marks a new identity where we are wedded to Christ and his church, where the journey of discipleship begins. It's in Christian baptism that we exchange vows with Jesus, forsaking all lesser loves, all lesser passions and pursuits and idols, idols that seek to lure us away from our only source of life. It's through the baptismal waters that we promise to love him until death do us part. And until he raises us up from the grave, spotless and new. It's in this religious ritual and act that we say, I do. And commit to faithfulness, setting off to follow Jesus on the long road of obedience. Also, it's in our Christian baptism that we say we do not belong to the kingdoms of the world or her partisan politics. Listen to this. I think this is exactly the way the first century church would have understood their baptism. You see, we reject the notion that Caesar is Lord or that his politics can save us, regardless of what Caesar that is, regardless if it's left or right of center. Instead, we say that Jesus is Lord. Is that political? Yes. Is it partisan? No. We place our trust when we say Jesus is Lord. We are placing our trust in his upside-down kingdom and the power under way of bringing peace and justice in the world. And in order to do that, we say in our baptism that we're repenting of everything that doesn't reflect Christ. I told you earlier that repentance does involve our personal turning from sin. That's true. But I do think we need to broaden our understanding of it if we want to fully capture what Christ means and what I think the early Anabaptists believed about it. Well, listen to what the biblical scholar N.T. Wright says about repentance in his book, The Meaning of Jesus. Wright, of course, is Anglican. <laughs> but I think his understanding is in keeping with the way the, uh, the Anabaptists view this. It's in keeping with the Anabaptist perspective. Wright says this. Listen to this quote. Jesus invited his hearers to repent and believe the gospel. In our world, telling people to repent and believe is likely to be heard as a summons to give up personal sins and accept a body of dogma or a scheme of religious salvation. Wright says this is a classic occasion where we have to unlearn our normal readings of first century text. And he points out how in Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, uses this phrase basically to say, 
Repentance is giving up your agendas to trust in Christ's. This is not to say that Jesus did not give this challenge. What we would call a religious or spiritual dimension, Wright says. It is to insist that we cannot use that to screen out the practical and political challenge that the words would convey. He was telling his hearers, in other words, to give up their agendas and to trust him for his way of being Israel. For his way of being the people of God and of bringing the kingdom, his kingdom agenda. Lastly, Wright says he was urging them to abandon their crazy dreams of nationalist revolution. Agendas, right, use that word. Agendas are what occur when Jesus isn't really Lord of your life and when Jesus isn't the one that determines all that you think about a subject or even how you respond to any given issue. You can say someone has an agenda when Jesus isn't the driving force behind all a person says or thinks about a matter. Instead, there is another passion or another cause that supplants him. And folks, you can know it ceases to be about Jesus when you stop looking and sounding like him. When we have agendas, we push Jesus over into the passenger seat, maybe even to the back seat. We take the will and we say, Jesus, I'll do the driving. And if I need something from you or when it's convenient or it fits with my cultural perspective, fits my narrative of things or fits my political party and their talking points, then I'll include you. But if you start trying to talk my, in my ear, you see, about how I'm not letting you drive and, and I need to repent of sin in my life or, 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 or maybe repent of my view on a matter, then this isn't going to work for me. Well, that's, that's when you know you have some agendas that you need to surrender to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Sometimes if you can just squeak out the amen, that counts too, okay? That's just, amen. It's really hard. Because it's in the waters of baptism. Listen to this. The church has been professing this for 2,000 years. We publicly renounce Satan who is the CEO of all the kingdoms of the world. We renounce our flesh and doing things our way. And all other competing allegiances, we say no to those. Any thought or desire that is contrary to the will of God expressed in Christ, we say we will turn from them and instead let him have the supremacy. Dear church, the supremacy of Christ is the only supremacy that is good for our world. And as Christ followers, we should know this, for we've let the waters of our own baptism signify our death to all other things that would demand our loyalty so that we can be raised with Christ in newness of life. And it's that life, it's that life that I pray for us at the Grantham Church we'll continue to discover together and be the difference that the world needs to see, that we'll find that third way together. Amen. Where are you at this morning?
Where are you at as you hear this message? Have you made a decision to follow Jesus and been baptized? Have you been baptized? If not, why not? Why not? If you want to follow Jesus and be baptized in obedience to his commands, you can do that right after this service. Yeah, it's okay. We have six planned, but there can be more. You can come forward and tell us in one or two sentences why you're coming to do this. And you can be a part of that six. If there's been a point that you've put your trust in Jesus and you've already been baptized, what, what might this spirit be saying to you today about your baptism? Maybe he's helping you to see it in a new light. Where might you need to renew your commitment to following Jesus by remembering the meaning of your baptism? Before we close this message in prayer this morning, brothers and sisters, I, I invite you, whoever you are, wherever you're at in your journey, to surrender everything to Christ right now. And that your identity in Christ above political parties, above political ways of viewing the world, in the politicizing of the gospel, that you would truly accept Jesus on his own terms and say, and hear him say, I've called you to be above all that. Remember your baptism and follow me. Let him truly be the Lord of your life so you can know his forgiveness, his freedom, it comes his way and his joy so that you can exchange the lesser things for the greater thing. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are good. And your way is better. Lord, but the burn of the flesh can be mightily strong at times. Other things that we put before you. Help us this morning to die to those things as we will see outwardly expressed in six baptisms, at least six baptisms this morning, Lord. And for all of us, for those of us who've been baptized, Lord, may you help us to renew those vows as we participate as a community in the baptisms of these young people this morning. Together, would you remind us as we celebrate, as we experience the joy of your Holy Spirit, that you have called us out as your people, out of the world, and out of the world's ways of seeing and shaping the future. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Speak to our hearts and help us to surrender to you. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray.